0: You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now, on to the show. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mysteries surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Aaron Fleming. an important thing to many people. You just take a walk through a museum and by the time you emerge, you feel inspired. But art can also have a dark side. For one woman, her art form of dance became a death sentence. She went from being a beautiful, loving woman who was remarkably close to her family to this closed off dark individual. Her family say that was due to the influence of just one man in his dark dance class. That influence, they say, directly caused her death. This week I'll talk about the death of dancer Sharon Stern. I heard this story through the TV show starring William Shatner called The Unexplained. To me it was just such an odd, compelling story that I had to learn more about it. So I found sources from articles by Rachel Aviv and The New Yorker, one by Melanie Asmar on westward.com, one by Shani Littman, and then a website set up by Sharon's family, and this is on familiesagainstcultteachings.org. Sharon Stern was born in 1979 in Florida to parents Tibor and Hannah Stern. Tibor was born in Czechoslovakia, and his parents were Holocaust survivors. Like many people of Jewish descent, his family then moved to Israel after the war. And that was where he fell in love and married Hannah Kobe. But after the 1973 Yom Kippur War, the couple decided to get out of there and move to Miami, Florida. And then in Miami, the Stearns opened and operated this very successful diamond business. And having this successful business gave them a very comfortable life to give to their two children, Ronald and Sharon. So I just want to emphasize how Sharon's family felt that she was growing up because it's really important to show that this happy, well-adjusted girl eventually turned into the exact opposite after meeting her mentor and guru. Sharon was described as this vivacious and creative person. She always wanted to be the center of attention. So Sharoni, as her family called her, was given a very loving home life. And at an early age, she showed an interest in acting and dance, which they fully supported. In school, she earned straight A's. So This is a girl that when she wrote her name, she dotted the I and Sharoni with a tiny flower. She was not a depressed, desolate girl. A teacher called her Miss Popularity, Miss Congeniality. I've done so many episodes about people who have taken a dark path due to their horrible early family life, and this is the exact opposite. The Sterns were wonderfully supportive of their children. As a mother, knowing that you can do all the right things with your child, only to have some dark force enter their lives later on and change all that is terrifying. Sharon followed her love of the arts to the University of Gainesville, and then later the University of Miami, where she earned a Bachelor of Arts degree. And then at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, she pursued a master's degree in fine arts. On a family's website, this is where they say her sad story truly began. They emphasize that at this point and earlier in her life, Sharon never exhibited any signs of mental issues. In fact, this was a woman brimming with happiness. It was probably due to her recent marriage to software engineer Todd Siegel, and that was in May of 2007. The family had this summer house in Colorado, which the couple then moved into after their nuptials. And this was so Sharon could pursue her education. According to the New Yorker article that I read, Naropa University is the first Buddhist-inspired university in Colorado. It was founded in 1974 by this exiled Tibetan teacher named Chogram Trungpa. The welcome letter from the dean of students says, you are encouraged to let go of habitual patterns of thought, feeling, and action to continually refresh your experience, viewing yourself in the world of new. As part of her MFA curriculum, she enrolled in a class to study buto. This is a style of Japanese dance. So Wikipedia describes it as a form of Japanese dance theater with a wide range of techniques and motivations for dance, performance, or movement. Founder Tasumi Hijikata uses the word distress to describe it, and I think that's most appropriate. It involves very taboo subjects, grotesque imagery, and extreme or very absurd movements performers usually wear white body makeup, they're topless men and women, and they used these very slow controlled movements such as silent screened, clawed hands or they roll up their eyes. For example, one of the first performances in 1959 had the other founder, Kazuo Ono's son, holding a live chicken between his legs. Then Hijikata then chased him off the stage into the darkness. I guess it was supposed to be a representation of homosexuality, but it just ended up outraging the audience, getting Hijikata banned from the festival. Hijikata, later inspired by writers like Jean Genet and the Marquis de Sade, explored even darker choreography. Just basically not something to catch on a date night for a good time. When I watched The Unexplained, the videos of the dances were disturbing, to say the least, It actually made me wonder why anyone would ever want to become involved with this form of dance, but I can't be a hypocrite because as a fan of true crime, I have to respect someone else's interest in a dark subject. One of Sharon's classmates at Naropa, Benjamin Stuber, recalled what it was like there. He said, for the more ambitious type A students in the class, and I include Shroni and I in that group, the spiritual side of Naropa kind of snuck up on us. I don't think we expected to be as moved as we were. So obviously the new experience created doubt in Sharon's mind as to where she was going with her life. Up to this point, she led this life where she thought she knew what she wanted, to get married, to finish school, to start a family, and now she really doubted herself. She wrote to a friend in a letter that she was reintegrating, repattering, and restructuring. And she also urged herself in her personal journal to contemplate uncertainty every day. In 2007, she began her first semester and her first introduction to the man that would change her life for the worse Katsura Khan. And this was actually his stage name, his real name being Tiriguchi Kotura. Khan was working as a guest instructor of Butoh. The 59-year-old had been performing Butoh since the late 70s, and he studied under one of the founders, Tsumi Hijikata in Kyoto. Now, we've heard all about Hijikata and his bizarre stage antics. Basically, the students were encouraged to bring Butoh, the dance of darkness, into every aspect of their lives. As with many forms of Eastern thought, the idea is to leave behind your ego self. Or as one apprentice put it, to give away all ideas of being an individual. One has to surrender the idea of their self. And that can be really great for some. It can force you to give up selfish aspects of human behavior. But on the other side of the coin, this is also tactics that are used in military and in cults. They want you to get rid of the individual Any way you look at it, you're training your brain to think a completely different way that's no longer focused on the individual. Like I said, it can be good for some, or it can be very detrimental. So one day the class performed this exercise where Khan told them to imagine that ants were crawling up their limbs and taking over their bodies. It was supposed to be this new way of thinking and expressionism through movement. But apparently after class, Sharon was found crying on the floor curled up in a ball. She said the exercise was very transformative for her. She had always seen the world in a very certain way, and now she was exploring this darker psychology, which she had never tapped into before. So when the semester ended, Kahn chose six students to perform one of his works, Sharon being one of them. Stuber recalls that in a performance in which all wore white paint and moved together... Even Sharon's husband, Todd, could not tell which one she was on stage. Then for Sharon's thesis, she decided to create a Butoh dance that was inspired by The Road to Emptiness. In her journal, she wrote that she wanted to enter dark places fearlessly. And for advice on how to do this, she asked Khan to become her mentor. But her advisor at school, a lady named Barbara Dilly often spoke to students about the dangers of having a role model or a guru and how one had to keep from trying to lose oneself by trying to please them. And it's apparent that Sharon did not heed that advice. Khan, who was referred to as a sensei, took a very, very close role as an advisor to this young woman. This once competitive woman now sought to escape the father-mother voice inside of her, It was a constant internal struggle with wanting to let go of the self, and yet at the same time wanting to be the best student in Khan's class. Her devotion was so intense that she wrote in an email to Khan that she wanted him to take up all of her time. Eventually, Sharon graduated in 2009, and she moved on to working with Khan as his assistant choreographer, and this was in his dance company called Katsura Khan and Sultan Banks. This led to a tour through the United States and South America in 2011 as Khan's dancing partner. But Kasura Khan was a married man, and he sometimes shared a room with Sharon. She declared that the relationship was never sexual, but Sherry Brown, who was another dancer in the troupe, acknowledged the very sexual atmosphere. She remembers telling Sharon that, hey, it'd be very messy if these lines were ever crossed between you two. And Sharon promised to her that she would keep things platonic, but she later insinuated that things had changed. So whether the relationship had become sexual, it was clear that there was a big change in Sharon. Her family noticed this huge difference in her behavior, and this was starting while she was still at school. Khan had encouraged her to cut her emotional ties with her family. Her father, Tibor, said she used to call home a few times a day, and that then turned into weeks from not hearing from her. They were really concerned, so they went to Todd about Sharon's behavior, but he said that she was doing what she needed to do at the time. And then ultimately, Todd and Sharon ended up separating. A friend that Sharon made on tour while in Israel summed up the odd relationship between Khan and Sharon, saying, She always said, I'm Sharoni, I'm the cutie. I mean, that was part of her identity. And then suddenly, when she encountered Butoh, she realized that she could express greater depths, more complexities. And from her perspective, Khan saw that depth. I think the encounter with him thrilled her, and it gave her a feeling that she was special, along with the promise of a professional dance career. That's a significant combination for a thirsty person. It's hard for me to believe that his intention was to suck away her life, but I'm sure he enjoyed her submission to him. A teacher with integrity would not be willing to have his pupils submit to him like that. I agree. This guy sounds very creepy. So while in Israel, Sharon met her mother, Hannah's sisters, and she stayed with them there. But they called Hannah saying their niece was acting very odd almost like she was enslaved to Khan, and this included paying all of his expenses and carrying his suitcases. And they said all the while, Khan just barked orders to her. So they finally stood up to him about his behavior, and he took off. Shortly after, Sharon told them that she could hear Khan in her head, and he wanted her to come to him. Physical deterioration was also taking a toll on Sharon, This once vibrant, very strong dancer had now become this frail, pale woman that people say was almost unrecognizable. To really understand it, you need to look up the before and after photos of her. And they're almost, to me, reminiscent of the before and after photos you see of meth users. Khan forced Sharon to fix dinner every night for the troupe, but she herself refused to eat, saying Khan needed the food, it was all for him. When they arrived in Sao Paulo, Brazil, there was a childhood friend of hers named Thabata Schwartz Mizrahi that met up with Sharon. The friend recalls thinking that she looked like a homeless person because her looks were very disheveled and all of her possessions were carried in plastic bags. Mizrahi thought it was such a shame because Sharon had always taken such good care of herself. And her thinness was just shocking. Because Khan told her that she was larger than the other dancers, she had started fasting. This is crazy because she was a thin woman. And surprisingly enough, Khan did warn Sharon about living the Butoh lifestyle in an email, saying it was a lonely life, one in which he had accepted because he would end up lying stone dead somewhere by the side of the road. It was a life of isolation, and Sharon was more of a very social creature. This dissuasion perhaps only incited her more. I think she was the type of person that if you told her she couldn't do something, that just made her want to do it more. She wrote back to him that Butoh was her journey through him and that she was never so clear about anything in her life. After Sao Paulo, the tour headed to Copenhagen for this performance called The 100 Dancers. And that's where things took a really scary turn. Katsura Khan called Ron, Sharon's brother, to say that Sharon had disappeared. So Ron, his parents, and Todd quickly arranged flights to get there to search for her themselves. But before they even boarded the flight, Copenhagen police let them know that, thank goodness, they had found her. Sharon was found wandering the streets, eventually winding up in a church shouting, Coming up, a hundred dancers! This is because she didn't even realize that the dance had ended. She thought she was still in the performance, but she's in the middle of a church. She was taken to a psychiatric hospital, and when police notified Khan, he refused to come to the hospital saying, She isn't the only one who's fallen in love with me. All the women students are in love with me. What's the difference? It's disgusting. Immediately, the Stearns brought their damaged daughter home to Florida. And Tibor was convinced that Kasura Khan had drugged his daughter in some kind of way. He condemned the actions of the man and back and forth emails with him. So while home, Sharon saw a psychiatrist who diagnosed her with depression. He gave her medicine, but she took it intermittently. In another article, I read that it was a psychologist named Dr. Eli Levy that she saw. And this article said that she admitted to being in love with Khan and felt guilty for leaving her husband for him. Her hesitancy to take the medicine was apparently from the idea that it would push her away from her goals of reuniting with her goo. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This psychologist said that Khan had hijacked her, which I think is a very appropriate term, and turned her against her family and society. While she was in Miami, her acting teacher visited her, and she said Sharon seemed like an automaton. This teacher and her husband were very familiar with Sharon's facial expressions because they worked with her in community theater, but this time they saw nothing in her. They compared it to not knowing if you're playing an instrument or if the instrument is playing you. To her family's dismay, Sharon and Kahn continued communication via email. To their surprise, Khan discouraged her from joining him until she was, quote, better. She wrote in her journal that she must accept the inevitable truth that nothing lasts. She was really concerned with Khan not wanting her anymore in these emails to him. In other emails, he told her that she wasn't sick with mental illness and that he alone could cure any sickness she might have. According to Tibor, the emails were hard to understand at times, as if they were written in code that only the two understood. Tibor said she asked him why he was also with other girls and he said he didn't love anyone. And then on the other hand, he wrote her saying we're lifelong partners for sure and that he was the only thing she had in her life. And then on the other hand, he suddenly stopped answering emails. She wrote him that she wanted to die and he answered saying to send him money via a Kyoto bank. In an effort to get her life together, Sharon moved to Israel in January 2012, and there she stayed with her mother's friend, Ruthie Nivon. However, her erratic behavior continued. When conversing with Khan in her emails, Sharon now referred to herself in third person, saying things like, "'Sharoni is very sorry. I'm guessing I must let go of attachment to Khan. Khan has wife and child. Sharoni has garbage.'" I've only one very honest, very sincere wish left. To go with Khan to some countryside and fast. No food, no water. Need no bed. No shower. No time. And this is written in all caps. To become empty. Want to shake this curse away. All he had to do was send back one email and Sharon was on the first plane to San Francisco to meet him. It was clear that the spell could not be broken. Unfortunately, it was like part of her old self, but something else. She could dance, but then her concentration would be broken very easily. And then people say her speech was a mix of English and Japanese, which she was trying to learn. I guess at one point she was in the middle of a conversation and suddenly saw a bus and jumped on it. So after 10 days, she returned home. Khan had actually written to the Stearns to bring her home. And then in April, Sharon flew to a Buto workshop alone in Brazil. And there she wrote this strange email to Khan asking him what happens to us after the deconstruction of your mind, body, ego. She wrote that she was thankful for his lessons even though she thought they were wrong. She loved him and thought he was an angel. Sharon returned to Florida to an apartment that she rented with a friend. And this apartment was nice because it afforded her freedom to be on her own, but still be close to her parents' house. On April 24th, she went out swing dancing. This was one of her old loves before Bhutto. At the time, her father was in Israel, and her mother vividly remembers waking up in the middle of the night without being able to get back to sleep. The next morning, Sharon's roommate found her body. She committed suicide by using a helium kit. Allegedly, Katsura Khan took a vow of silence for 49 days, which is the amount of time Buddhists believe that it takes to transition to the next life. Her brother Ron last saw her the evening before she died. He remembers they were outside and they were discussing the recent birth of his son, and Sharon said that she would never have her own children. He said he knew that's when she'd just given up on life. He said in a way it was like, she had already left. Sharon Stern's family are convinced that Kasura Khan is completely to blame for her untimely death, something tantamount to murder. They're so convinced that they filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Kasura Khan. They claim that Sharon was so despondent about Khan rejecting her that it drove her to suicide. They also alleged that he had complete mental control over her. And using her journals as evidence, they insist that Khan brainwashed her against society. At first, Khan tried to say he couldn't go to Florida for the Broward County civil suit because he was in Japan, but a judge eventually forced him to go because he had communicated with Sharon while in that county. The judge ruled it was necessary for him to be in that jurisdiction. The suit claimed that Khan systematically stripped away Sharon's dignity, free will, and self-respect. Kahn Sharon, abused her physically and mentally, humiliated her, insulted her, and manipulated her. After six years and $500,000 in court cost, Tibor Stern won the court battle. Terugushi Kotura or Katsura Ken, was found liable for Sharon Stern's suicide. But sadly, it didn't bring about the closure that Tibor was hoping to achieve. In the end, he didn't do it for money or closure, though. Stern went through the lawsuit for all of the families going through something similar that maybe they couldn't afford to do such a thing. He basically did it for other parents. The Stern family have started the Families Against Cult Teachings and Abuses website. They really hope to prevent other families from going through that same heartbreak that they did. Tibor said they have yet to receive an acknowledgement from Khan or any responsibility for his daughter's death. In fact, he says he's been threatened with physical harm from other Bhutto followers. Now, in the end, it does bring up a lot of questions, like, can one person be so influential that they can control another person's life and actions? And for that, out of personal experience, I can definitively say yes I have a loved one who was, in my opinion, brainwashed, and this person was completely under the control of other people. I remember reading letters from this loved one, and it was just astonishing how far gone they were in their head. And this was as a child that I could recognize that. It's so easy to find people in vulnerable states. I think I think we're all trying to better ourselves, and we often look, sadly, to others to help us in that journey, which can be good and bad. Sometimes... We latch onto those that we think have the answers when they're only concerned with having control. Sharon's parents did all the right thing. All the right things. They gave her this really good upbringing. They gave her lots of love. And when she fell under the control of Khan, they tried to get her help and get her away from him. But like I said, the frustrating thing as a parent is that children are their own entities. This is a hard thing to learn. It's the hard reality of parenting. I wish it was not. It's terrifying. I've watched my family go through it. Every day I talk to people who have lost kids to drugs. So I really applaud Sharon's parents for trying to make a difference and to keep the same thing from happening to others. It's so commendable. So that was the story of Sharon Stern. If you or anyone you know is contemplating suicide, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Just call 1-800-273-8255. They say every call is answered They're there 24-7 and will listen. Or you can go to the suicidepreventionlifeline.org. There's a really great thing in the Pittsburgh area. It's something called Resolve Crisis Services that can help. You can call 888-796-8226. This is also a 24-hour hotline, and they have remote services that will come to you. They also provide services just for children and teens called CACTUS or the Child and Adolescent Crisis Team Intervention Services. You can call them at 412-864-5065. Please just reach out to someone if you're thinking of harming yourself because you cannot imagine how many of us have felt that same way. You'd really be surprised. You are not alone, even though you may feel that way. I think that's just such an important message to get out there. I hope you're all doing well. I hope you're still enjoying the podcast. I'm really loving that there's more interaction on the Facebook page. That's so cool. I'm just way too old for TikTok, or I guess I'd be doing videos on there. I've been watching a lot of Bailey Sarian videos and attempting to read another book for a book review, which is so exciting. I watched a film the other day that I've become obsessed with called Under the Silver Lake. Oh my God, please, if you've seen it, please discuss it with me. It stars Andrew Garfield, and he's this down-and-out Hollywood guy, and he tries to find out what happened to his beautiful neighbor who just disappeared. It's from the director of It Follows. It's kind of like, I guess, David Lynch for the new generation. I spent a whole day on Reddit reading different theories. That's how obsessed I was with this. Seriously, if you've seen it, hit me up. Tell, you, tell me what you think. Email me at redrumblonde at or hit me up on social media. Thank you so much for listening and catch you guys next week. This message comes from BOF sponsor, eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem or sneakers and streetwear so fresh. Every step feels fly. eBay gets it.